listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, hear now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring you on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. Our New Testament reading comes from Romans 1, 1 through 7. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures. Regarding his son, who as to earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed and the son of God in power and by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through him, we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to obedience that came from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called by his holy peaceful, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Y'all can be seated. Thanks, y'all. Okay, stay on the edge of your seat, though. I want you to listen quickly, listen well today, because I have been uh, doing a great job preaching in the allotted time so that services end at the proper time to turn over the classrooms. And I have so much I want to share with you from the scriptures today. It's really rich, so listen well. So let me set the scene. Go back in the Old Testament. Uh, David had, uh, had united the 12 tribes of Israel to become one nation. The 12 sons of Jacob turned into these 12 tribes, and under David they become united under his monarchy. And this was really, really important David brings them together, and after the time of David and his son Solomon, this united kingdom splits, and ten of the tribes uh, to the north become known as Israel. We're also going to see them in our readings today under the name Ephraim. Ephraim is often referred to as Israel. There are these ten tribes to the north called Israel, and then the two to the south around Jerusalem are called together Judah. But there was one really big and important difference between the ten tribes of Israel and the two tribes that comprised Judah. And it was to the tribes of Judah that God made a really big promise to David. Now then, tell my servant David, 
this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the posture, from the pasture, from tending the flock, and I appointed you ruler over my people, Israel. I've been with you wherever you've gone, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house or a dynasty for you. Your house, your dynasty, your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So the tribes to the north, Israel, they have their own line of kings, but the tribes to the south, those of Judah, have been given this everlasting covenant with God that someone on David's throne is always going to rule. Well, 13 generations pass. David is gone. Solomon is gone. His son is gone. We come to King Ahaz, and Ahaz is a new ruler. He's a young ruler. He's not a particularly great ruler. He's 20 years old when he takes the throne, and he's got problems on every side of him. To the north, the kingdom of Israel has allied itself with the kingdom of Aram to the northeast. And these two have declared war against Judah and Ahaz and Jerusalem. They want to wipe it from the map. Not only that, Ahaz has to always worry about Egypt to the south and to the west, and he feels like he is surrounded by enemies on all sides. Now, maybe you know what it's like to feel like you're surrounded on all sides by difficulties. It could be that your job is going poorly, your finances are in the red instead of the black, your children are acting up, you're worried about your aging parents, your own health is not going so great. Everywhere you look, you feel like there's prob- there are problems, there's conflict. And Ahaz definitely felt like that. There were problems on all sides, but he was also risking a military invasion by two nations coming up against him. And God sees that Ahaz and the people of Judah are just gripped with terror. They're freaked out about what could happen. Are the kings to the north, Israel and Aaron, going to come in and wipe us off the map? Are we going to die? What do we do? And God sends to these people the prophet Isaiah. We're going to back up a little bit, a little bit further up in Isaiah chapter 7. Now, the house of David was told, Ahaz, etc., Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. The Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son, here's a great name, Shear Jashub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field. And say to him, Be careful, keep calm, and do not be afraid. Don't lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram. Rezin's the king of Aram. Don't worry about them. Don't worry about the son of Remaliah. Who would be worried about the son of Remaliah? I mean, come on. Aram, Ephraim, and Remaliah's son applauded your ruin, saying, Let's invade Judah. Let's tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make the son of Tabil king over it. Yet this is what the Sovereign Lord says, and we'll pause right there. The first thing I want you to note is that God observed the discouragement and the worry of Ahaz and the people, and he overtly sent encouragement. God sees the things that you're going through. It's important for us to be attentive to receive the messages that God is sending. 
Now, what we're going to find is that Ahaz is ultimately going to have, have to decide for himself whether or not he's going to receive God's encouragement, whether he's going to believe and trust in God's promises, or whether he's going to try to deal with things on his own terms. And each of us have to make the same choice, too. Are we going to believe in God's promises? Are we going to hold on to the things that he says are true? Are we going to receive his encouragement? Now, God throws out all of this through the prophet Isaiah, and maybe Ahaz, the king, is feeling invalidated by God's confidence, saying, don't worry. Maybe, you know, maybe Ahaz felt a little bit like the this is fine dog, like just pretend like everything is fine. But God was not invalidating the threats. God was just not as concerned about them as Ahaz was because God knew something that Ahaz didn't know. I appreciate Tim Keller saying, God will only give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything that he knows. Here's the other thing that King Ahaz didn't get, and maybe you and I don't adequately appreciate this ourselves, that opposition and resistance and pushback are natural reactions to like making a change or they're natural reactions to having a stance. And it's usually not bad. It's just a phenomenological response. When you have an opinion that disrupts the flow or when you take a stance that's different than the people around you, it, it elicits a response. It's not bad. It's often just normal. Now, the reason that Israel and Aram were going after Ahaz and the people of Judah was Ahaz had refused their invitation to become a, like a three-team ally to go against the nation of Assyria. And when Ahaz said no to this, his stance against open war with Assyria prompted a counter-reaction. It's like, okay, you don't want to play with us? We're going to take you out. That's what's happening here. Relational systems like equilibrium. They like, th they like people to say yes. They like the absence of disruption. So, Anytime you make a change or take a stand, especially when you're moving toward something more good, something more true, something more right, you should expect forms of resistance, even within yourself. <clears throat> so in a couple of weeks at the beginning of the year, you're going to make a resolution that you want to make some kind of positive change in your life, and everything within you is going to wage war against that intention. This is the law of reality. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. In fact, resistance and pushback and opposition are often a sign that you're moving in the right direction, but be careful because it can also be a sign that you're an idiot and you need to use discernment to tell the difference. So here we have Ahaz who is, is dealing with these enemies who've declared open war and God says to him, stay calm. Don't worry. Don't freak out. Don't lose heart. And Ahaz wonders why, and God says, because the thing that you're most worried about happening, about Israel and Aram coming in and destroying you, that thing that you're most worried about is not going to happen. Back to Isaiah. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus. The head of Damascus, is, it's only resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim, that just means Israel, will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria. The head of Samaria is it's only Remaliah's son. If you don't stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. 
So what God's saying here is, first of all, to, to Ahaz, the war you're afraid of happening, the worst thing in the world is not going to happen. And he's going to say why in just a minute. Second of all, he, he talks disparagingly about the people who are coming up against him. He says, second of all, the people you're worried about, and I'm going to use a very technical term here, are jabronis. <laughs> this is a sophisticated use of language uh, here, jabroni. Jabroni, of course, is slang for a stupid, foolish, or contemptible person, a loser. John, would you use it in a sentence? Sure, I will. She always has a comeback to own the trolls and jabronis on Twitter. Shut your mouth, you dumb jabroni. Okay? <laughs> oh, my gosh. I write these things to satisfy myself and perhaps two or three other people. God's like, you're worried about resin? Rimaliah's son, jabronis. These are fools. These are not people that you should take overly serious. And in referring to them in this way, Remaliah's son for crying out loud, he's causing Ahaz to reflect and remember who he is. He is the son, so to speak, of David. Remember the promises? David's the one with whom God made an everlasting covenant. One of your descendants is always going to rule on the throne. And God says, look, you want further assurance that I'm on your team? Ask me for a sign. This, don't we all want a sign from God that we're moving in the right direction? We plead with God, give me a sign. God says to him, ask me, and I'm going to give you a sign. And, and, and Ahaz is playing, he's being a little bit difficult. Ahaz says, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. So Isaiah said, hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and we'll call him Emmanuel. He'll be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the right, the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. Okay, so these words should sound familiar. Uh, Saturday night, you'll hear these words. These are words in Matthew's gospel referring to the birth of Jesus by Mary. Here's Matthew 1. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. But remember our context here. Is God through Isaiah talking to Ahaz about Mary? And if so, in what way is that helpful? Hey, don't worry about the big problem, because hundreds of years after you're dead, it will have solved itself. Like, that's not as helpful as you might think. Is God, through Isaiah, talking about Mary? I want you to recognize when we're reading the prophets, that the meaning of a prophet's words are not under the control of the prophet, but of God. Now, the immediate context or the application of these words were for Ahaz and for his situation. In Hebrew, the word that's translated here into our NIV, virgin, is young woman. It says that God is saying a young woman is about to get pregnant, and by the time this kid is eating solid foods, your enemies are going to be gone. The next chapter actually affirms this interpretation of the reading, Isaiah chapter 8. We have another great child name here. 
and made love to the prophetess, says Isaiah, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said to me, name him Maher Shalal Hashbaz. I said, great idea, Lord. For before the boy knows how to say my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the plunder of Samaria will be carried off by the king of Assyria. Now the kiddo was born, and before the kid could eat solid foods, this third entity, Assyria, comes out of nowhere and wipes out Rezin and Remaliah's son, the two things that Ahaz was the most worried about. And some of you are wondering, okay, is John saying that that's not about Jesus? It's clearly quoted in the New Testament about Jesus. Here's what I would say. All of the scriptures in the Old Testament had meaning to their first audience in their first context. And I would say that all of the scriptures in the Old Testament find their fulfillment and their fullest meaning in the light of Jesus the Messiah. So this had a meaning that was evident, that was applicable, that was a source of encouragement to Ahaz. Hey, somebody's about to get pregnant, and within about, say, nine months, the two things that you're freaking out about are going to be fully resolved. There was a meaning for them, but there's also a meaning for us. All of the Old Testament had meaning to its first audience and its first context, and all of the scriptures, all of the Old Testament, finds its fulfillment and its fullest meaning in the light of Jesus the Messiah. And as a result, we can read the scriptures retroactively, and we can see things that they couldn't see, and we can hear things that they couldn't hear, and we can understand things that they couldn't understand. Jesus said this to the Pharisees in John chapter 5. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life, but these are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. In the immediate context, there was a son to be born, but this imagery, this idea of a coming son and a son of David was not something that the prophet gave up on. Even he knew it meant something beyond the immediate context. In the next chapter, Isaiah chapter 9, this vision of a son is expanded. The people walking in the darkness have seen a great light. On those living in a land of deep darkness, the light has dawned. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. And he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Isaiah could foresee there was indeed a great son of David to come. Isaiah's son would not be called Wonderful Counselor or Mighty God. Isaiah's son would not reign on David's throne. There was another son of David to come. One who, as the psalm that we read today said, would have clean hands and a pure heart, would not lift up his soul to what is false or swear deceitfully. Who would be the, 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 the King Almighty, the King of glory, who would enter the gates of the city. The psalm of speaking prophetically foresaw the gates would open before the King of glory. When these words of Isaiah were translated from Hebrew to Greek, it happened between the 3rd and the 1st centuries BCE, uh, hundreds of years before the incarnation of Jesus Christ. 
And as the words were translated, translated in our version, our version of the Bible version, it had been young woman or young maiden in the Old Testament in Isaiah, a secondary meaning of this term young woman emerged, and they rendered it in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, virgin. The virgin will be with child. Before Jesus comes on the scene, before the angels appear to marry a virgin, this was an interpretation affirmed by God's words and God's actions toward Mary. After he had considered this, after Joseph thought about divorcing Mary, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David! Don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. And then that leads to the verses that we just read today. And so Jesus fulfilled the promises that God had made through the prophet 700 years ago. And Paul, writing to the church at Rome, sees how God's story, beginning at creation, leading through, the Israel, through Israel, and like foreshadowed through the law and the Psalms and the prophets, came to its fulfillment in Jesus when he began his letter to the Romans. He said, this is the gospel God promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who the, through the spirit of holiness was appointed son of God and power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. God keeps his promises. There are two things that I want to encourage you with today. One of the things that I want you to hold on to today and to remember is that God keeps His promises and you can trust Him. God keeps His promises and you can trust Him. The New Testament goes to great lengths, to painstaking detail, to demonstrate how God's activities in Jesus were the fulfillment of promises that have been given through the law and the Psalms and the prophets. And it's because it's so difficult for us to believe, because each of us are so slow to believe. We, God knew that we needed a paper trail. So examine the Scriptures and be encouraged. See how God knew where the Messiah would be born, how the Messiah would come to the Virgin Mary. God gave promises and God honored His promises. Revisit the story. And in this season of Advent, when we look forward to the second coming of Jesus, more than anything else, more than a countdown to Christmas, the season of Advent is a time where we look forward to and we yearn for, and even the Scripture says cryptically, we can hasten the day of the Lord's coming. The season of Advent, when we're looking forward to that, we need reminding that God has demonstrated His faithfulness to us. He promised that He would come. He promised that He would send His Son, the Messiah, and in the incarnation of Jesus, we see the faithfulness of God's promises. And just as God has been faithful in the past, we need reminding that this same Jesus has promised to return to us, to be with us, to be our God, to wipe away every tear from our eyes and to make everything new. And as He has been faithful to His promises in the past, we believe He is faithful now and He will be faithful forever. God keeps His promises and you can trust Him. And today, as we come to communion in just moments, 
There's a fresh invitation for you to consider, to hear the voice of God saying to you, what new thing, what new fear, what new anxiety do you need to trust me with today? We remember God keeps his promises and we can trust him. Here's the second thing I want you to miss, and you've listened really well. There's one more thing I want you to hold on to. I said God keeps his promises and you can trust him. The second thing I want to encourage you with is to make sure that you fear the right thing. So we've been all over the place in the scriptures, but I want you to go back to thinking about Ahaz, working, worrying about Israel and about Aram and Assyria and Egypt. In the middle of all this hubbub with Ahaz, God pulls the prophet Isaiah aside. And he's got a word that's just for the prophet, but, it's, but we also get to listen in on. And maybe it's the case, you know, Isaiah is himself not God. He's not divine. He's subject to fears and insecurities himself. We get the sense that Isaiah is starting to worry in spite of delivering God's promises and God's warnings that it may actually be the case that Israel's going to come, that Aram's going to come, that people are going to suffer. And Isaiah, we infer, might be getting a little bit worried himself. God says as this message to the prophet, Isaiah chapter 8, This is what the Lord said to me with his strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of this people. Do not call conspiracy everything this people calls a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one that you are to regard as holy. He is the one that you are to fear. He is the one that you are to dread. God says to, to, to Isaiah, look, the, the problem with Ahaz is that Ahaz is way too scared about the wrong things. He's afraid of Israel and Aram and Assyria and Egypt. Psh! God's like, I'm not worried at all about these things. No, no, no. The Lord is the one that you are to fear. The Lord is the one that you ought to honor. God is the heavyweight here. Many of us live in fear, but we live in fear of all the wrong things. The psalmist in Psalm 96 says, Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord and bless His name. Proclaim His salvation from day to day, His glory among the nations, His marvelous deeds among the peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the people are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. So ascribe to the Lord, you families of the nations, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. He is the one you are to fear. He's to be feared above all gods. There are lots of things that evoke fear in us. But make sure that you're fearing the right things. And remember that proper fear and honor and reverence before the Lord is the beginning of the path of wisdom. And when we trust that God keeps His promises... And when we have our fears in their proper place with the help of God's Spirit, we can become more like Jesus in one key way. 
When the author Dallas Willard was asked to describe Jesus in a single word, he shocked and he delighted his listeners when he said, if I were to describe Jesus in one word, it would be relaxed. Now may we, with the assurance of God's faithfulness to His promises, live confident and lighthearted and relaxed lives in the fear of God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Everybody said? Amen. If you're serving communion, would you go ahead and come and get in place? We remember how on the night in which Jesus gave Himself for us, how He took bread He gave thanks, he broke the bread, he gave it to his disciples, and he said, take and eat, this is my body which is given for you, do this in remembrance of me. When supper was over, he took the cup, he gave thanks, he gave it to his disciples, and he said, drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins, so do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. You guys can go ahead and get in place. And so, Lord Jesus, in memory of what you've done, in confidence of your promises, we pray that you'd increase our trust today. Pour out your Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ that we may be for the world, the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. Do all of the things that we cannot do. Put faith in our hearts. Deliver us from our addictions. Heal us from our sickness. Make us well in our minds and our bodies, and may we in our individual lives and in our families and our friendships and our church honor the Lord Jesus Christ, descended from David, risen from the dead. Oh, Jesus, we love you and we trust you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship and community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.